Hello, I am Micah Woods, the chief scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center and the director of Pace Turf's Information Service. This is the ATC Double Cut, where I have a chance to talk about turfgrass topics from around the world, topics that I've usually written about on my website, and I think that they're so interesting that it is worthwhile giving them a double-cut treatment to talk about them also. Today, I am so pleased to have as a guest, joining all the way from Iceland, Mr. Bjarni Hannesson, the course manager at NAS Golf Club. Welcome, Bjarni. Thanks for having me. Well, it is morning there in Iceland. It's September. Winter must be rapidly approaching. What type of temperatures do you have today? Today we have, uh, well, if you go slightly inland, then you are at uh, frost, night uh, night frost. and uh, But it's going to creep up to about 10, 11 degrees, which oh. is uh, summer temperature and here in Iceland. I'll be tanning That's later on in the afternoon, <laughs> eating some ice cream and <laughs> enjoying the, the solid 10 degrees that we'll be getting. Well, yeah, that I remember some June and Julys where you have those kind of temperatures and you're grateful for them. Yeah, we've, I mean, <laughs> the highest temperature uh, on my course recorded this year was 16.4 degrees. Uh, that's the warmest. Uh, I'm not talking average over 24 hours because the warmest got the other day, uh, 14 degrees for 24 hours. And uh, that was a great day. So your Nest Golf Club is out on that peninsula um, and it's right by the, so you're surrounded on three sides by water or almost on four sides? I would say we're 330 degrees. Uh, it's just a little strip that leads onto that little um, ball shaped, you know, with just a little um, tiny peninsula. We're quite low, close to the city center. I mean, if you hop on a bike, it takes you 15 minutes. You're in Reykjavik city center on a bike. Um, so, and it's kind of funny because um, right now, my low temperature for the night was 5.2 degrees. But if you go slightly, I mean, even Reykjavik Airport, which is, uh, like I said, 15 minutes away from us, they were at uh, about one point some degrees. And if you go slightly further into Reykjavik, then they were at negative. So we get, uh, we don't get as massive swings in temperatures. So they sort of stay the same. That means that our high temperatures through the day, you can often find Reykjavik Airport being two, three, four degrees warmer than us. So uh, you are moderated by all that cold water. Yeah, but yeah, just having that, well, some would argue it's warm. It's the Gulf Stream. So if, if we didn't have the Gulf Stream, it would be even colder. But yeah, we, we used to get more. I mean, for example, we don't have a lot of dew issue even through the, through the summer months. Um, so, you know, when we see dew in August, we're like, whoa, look at that. <laughs> so Because we just don't swing a lot, just sort of stays similar temperatures throughout the year. No, it's not the year, well, through the summer months. Well, I thank you for joining me. I was reminded, uh, because it's September, I'm going to start sharing my screen and bring up a mm -hmm. blog post that I wrote, and I just checked the date. I wrote this on September 29th of 2013. Now, I've updated it a little bit since then as I moved it over to my new website, but it's a post Turfgrass Notes from Iceland that I wrote after I visited for the first time in September of 
2013. So that is um, nine years ago that I yeah. that I visited in September, and that was just a splendid trip. And I think not everybody's had a chance to go to Iceland. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about mm -hmm. turf grass and golf and sports turf in mm -hmm. this really amazing part of the world. And if you'll bear with me, uh, what did I start with? That photo must be of, that must be Gaysier. That's Gaysier Golf Club, yep. Yep, which is the most inland course in the entire country, it, yep. to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, I think you're correct there, yep. Which is something like 60, I, I wrote some notes. So let's go through these bullet points that I wrote, and you tell me if what I assessed after that initial visit in 2013 is correct, mm -hmm. and maybe that leads into some more discussion of how turf grass is in Iceland today. So um, let's see. In this post, which I'll put a direct link to in the show notes, we visited 11 golf courses. You went with me on to most of those courses, mm -hmm. and we also saw geysers, waterfalls, ocean cliffs, volcanic craters and lawns so there's actually for a uh for a natural country there's a lot of grass there and a lot of wild grasses like when we were at the westman yeah. islands there was fescue growing all over the place just on the cliffs yep, yep. and we had uh you saw that uh blue fescue the festival of paris which is with the seats where where the uh where they germinate yep on the grass so you actually see germinated seats hanging in the air there yeah <laughs> so we had that's, that quite a bit of that yeah that's right and um i believe when i visited in 2013 i think that was your first year at kalir golf club and prior yeah. to that you'd been at grindavik and we saw yeah. that grass you showed that to me in the mm -hmm. some of the lava fields that are around grindavik golf club which for mm -hmm. people who uh, have been to Iceland and been to the Blue Lagoon, or who have seen that uh, hot spring with the those striking colors that, yeah. that's called the Blue Lagoon. It's right uh, right near there. You can find this fescue where the seeds germinate right mm -hmm. in the seed head. It's it's yeah. fascinating. And that, by the way, I'm going to slide in an uh, something that most people don't know, but Grindavik Golf Course is, I believe, and someone might correct us here, but I think it's the only golf course in the world located uh, in the cracks between two tectonic plates. So we often joke about that uh, on the ninth, you actually drive from North America into Europe from <laughs> over this little, little crack in the ground. But to, to be absolutely fair, the, the cracking, you know, the zone is about one kilometer in width. And and you can see it if you if you when you if you fly into Keblaik Airport and especially if you're coming landing in from the south and you can see those cracks in the ground because you can if you just look down you see the uh, the lava field just ripping apart. Well, you can so. definitely see that fracture on the golf course at Green yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's quite yeah it's 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 both a separation uh, mm -hmm. laterally but also in a vertical direction where yep. one. There's like blocks of rock and a cliff. It's, it's quite quite a spectacular sight. And mm -hmm. um, so that is a course that had lots of fescue on it. And I think what type of grasses will we typically see on the golf courses around the coast of Iceland? Well, we, we tend to try to grow fescues, the finer fescues. They are, uh, but obviously we have our POA. <laughs> 
And especially with all the traffic, we'll probably get into that later on, uh, how popular golf is. But um, we also try to, you know, colonial bands, brown, well, creeping bands. We haven't been very aggressively trying to grow that um, just because it's slow out of the gate in, in early and summer. I, I was just in New Zealand in mm -hmm. early August, early to mid-August, yeah. and I saw so much brown top bent grass there, mm -hmm. and that was really impressive. Now, yeah. that's that's much warmer than Iceland, but definitely the brown top what a what a beautiful fine textured grass that is yeah i mean, I mean just some of the cultivars that we have nowadays are just beautiful <laughs> they're absolutely fantastic um uh, and they they do fine over here as well it, it's just the creepers they look great in um sort of late well, it's like july august time but it's just that may period that we struggle a little bit with the creeping bands yeah they, they uh, creeping bent is native is creeping bent is native to iceland uh ryegrass for example is not so uh, uh th therefore ryegrass for example over here can crash and burn quite badly <laughs> with the winter months yeah but, i've i've seen some of that i i had such a good time on that september 2013 visit that i subsequently mm -hmm. went back to iceland a couple of times in the mm -hmm. spring and early summer season and it was, uh, I got to see some of that winter damage as the, as the ice and snow melted. And uh, yeah, you definitely want to have a grass that can survive under some ice. If I'm not mistaken, I think you came here in a year where it was like really cold and dry and, mm -hmm. and it was late April, early May or something like that. And we were yeah, playing, was, on, but it was like two, three degrees. Well, it was 2015. It was the spring yeah. of 2015. Uh, when it was extremely cold when I was there. And I was yeah. back again in 2016, but it was slightly warmer. But it was 2015 yeah. that the temperature didn't rise above two or three degrees. And I recall, I've, I've got some blog posts about this because I had my light meter. And we yeah. were coming into May, which is mm -hmm. approaching um, some really long days. And yeah. the it wasn't, the sun was, uh, the it, it may have even been going into early June. Uh, mm -hmm. when I was there. And I recall that the daily light integral that I was measuring and the photosynthetic photon flux density with the light meter was yeah. optimum for yeah. cool season grass to grow. <laughs> it was more light than the grass could actually use. And the yeah. temperatures during the daytime were two degrees Celsius. The growth yeah. potential, the cool season growth potential was zero. And yeah. The grass was not doing anything. And then people mm -hmm. ask me, which is more important, light or temperature? And people often ask, shouldn't I adjust the growth potential based on light? And I'm yeah. like, you know what? Anytime that it's warm enough for the grass to grow, there's usually enough light. But mm -hmm. temperature can be a limiting factor when light for cool season grasses rarely is. Mm -hmm. And we... So. And that's, this, this often happens to us here in May because May is the driest month. And we often get like northerly winds coming in uh, in May, and on the south and the southwest, we're located in the southwest, like seventy percent of the population is. Um, there, it usually it means dry. So if it's coming from the north, that means we're usually you know it's rained out for the you know north in the country, and so we usually have clear skies. But wind coming from the North Pole, effectively. <laughs> <laughs> 
and that's soon after the masters <laughs> on tv and people are just absolutely golf mad at this time and and even though we're not we're not at the arctic circle we're slightly shy of the arctic circle we're at about 64 degrees and uh uh, but that what means is, what is the Arctic? Is it? 60? Oh yeah, sorry. The Arctic the Arctic Circle is 66, 66 degrees north. That means that at sixty six degrees, one day of the year the sun doesn't sit. You always see the top of it, and uh, that means technically speaking, the sun sets down here for the summer month. But it gets so um, it doesn't go that far below, you know, the the horizon. So it actually hits the sky. Therefore, mm -hmm. you can play golf twenty four seven. And yep. therefore, we get a lot of play. Yeah, I and I noted uh, that there were seventy golf courses in Iceland. That's what I noted in that blog post. Yeah. And I noted that the population was three hundred twenty thousand people. I suppose yeah. those numbers may have changed a bit since then. Yeah, we're up to about three hundred sixty thousand people. That's huge. Um, <laughs> that's... <laughs> <laughs> but the golf courses have come down a little bit because. Um, uh, I think we're at about 64 or five at the moment because uh, some of them have closed over the years. Um, mm -hmm. The reason why we have a lot of golf courses in Iceland is because every single village seems to have an iron holder. And back in when golf was booming a little bit here in the 80s, um, a lot of people did that on voluntary basis. You know what I mean? These are very small clubs, some of them. And... Uh, that generation is just coming of age and then the younger generation is like a, they don't do anything unless they get paid for it <laughs> so, so it's hard to run a golf course um with 50 members uh, you know mm -hmm. even though it's just a time holder um but golf yeah i mean the golf courses here in Reykjavik in the capital area where about 230 40,000 people live they're just absolutely packed um right because you've only got what, a dozen golf courses or something in the Reykjavik area? Yeah, we have about, I think we, yeah, just yeah, just share of 20. I think it was like 18 or something courses in, in that and area. Is that eight? I noticed a couple of them have more than 18 holes. So is that 18 hole yeah. equivalent? Yeah. Or? Well, I'm, I'm thinking out of a tee time. So some of them are nine holes. Um, one of them is at 12 holes. Um, then... 18 hole loops. For example, Reykjavik Golf Club runs uh, Korpa course, which has uh, 27 holes. Uh, and then they have like a shorter course, you know, that's a nine holer as well. So they run the 27 as a nine and 18, and then they rotate between the uh, which nine they play as 18 and all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to give you an idea, Reykjavik Golf Club also also another side. So they have an 18 hole there. So they have 3,800 members. Um, uh, there's a lot of members. Um, we have about s just over six percent of the entire nation is a as a golf club member, and more than ten percent of the nation actually plays golf. Oh wow! And that is, is that, by, I mean, is that adults that or, or the entire population? No, no that's not the entire population. So wow! Uh, so out of the people who can actually stand <laughs> and swing a club, <laughs> <laughs> that's closer to eight percent, I guess. Um, so to put that into perspective, I think the average in the European Union is uh, about 0.5%. So we're more than tenfold uh, the average uh, participation. Uh, and it's the highest in, in Europe, at least. I think one, probably the highest in the world, to be fair. So, so we're it, a golf-mad nation, So it doesn't go, make any sense, given the temperature. 
<laughs> no, but there are there um as Edwin Rawl, the golf course architect, has mentioned to me, and mm -hmm. um I would suggest that people check out some of his writings and uh he's been a a guest on various uh podcasts and so on. Uh you mm -hmm. can probably find him saying this more clearly than I can. But he mm -hmm. he's suggested to me that the long days in the summer give you lots of time outside of work. So if yep. if you're working eight hours a day, and if it's light and you could do things outdoors for 24 hours a day, that gives mm -hmm. you 16 potential hours mm -hmm. at which you can go do things. Now, as a golf course superintendent, mm -hmm. I imagine that is a bit difficult because the golfers see that it's light. They want the course to be open so they can play. So there's probably people teeing off all day long. When do you get the work done? You just work in traffic. Um, if, I mean, if you look at these courses, uh, how they're staffed here, um, and now we're obviously closed for, uh, you know, from like November until end of April. Uh, therefore, it's kind of hard for the clubs to have a lot of full-time staff. Uh, that has changed a little bit over the years, but nevertheless, I mean, I'm I'm the only on my nine hole. I, I, NASCAR Club is just a nine hole course, but we uh, I'm just the only one who's full time. But I get someone coming in for six months, and then I get eight uh, young, you know, young adults or whatever you call it, um, some you know, seventeen to twenty three three year olds. You know, they're in high school slash universities, just doing a summer summer gig, so they come in for about three months. But we get a lot of them. So you can imagine having on a nine-hole course, in total, when we're all there, we're 10. So that's a, quite a high number. But it's partly because we're paying them to sit and watch golf. Because oh. I can show up at 5 o'clock, <laughs> but there's going to be golf. You, what's, you, your, what's your tea time set up there? It, no, it's like if you're a member, you can just play whenever you want to. If you want to show up at 3 o'clock in the night, you can show up at 3 o'clock at night and play golf. <laughs> Um, if you want to, it's like our official tea times run from seven and onwards and they're fully booked. You know, if there's a half decent day, then they're full book, fully booked. Um, and we, we, you know, we run from May through September. Uh, we, we are usually in the 30 to 35,000 rounds. We see regular golf clubs in the 40 and even seen 45,000 rounds played on their courses in, in five months period. Wow. So, so, so you just you just have to deal with it. And we, I mean, usually we work against traffic. So usually we send our staff, you know, nine backwards. We don't go one onwards, and you know, people just have to accept the fact that the, the greens aren't mown, and they don't mow. They don't. They don't complain about it. There's the golfing public sort of accepts this and understands this. So it's they just want to play. <laughs> well, I guess is that good from a revenue side? For the for the club's finances, at least in the Reykjavik area, that there's plenty of revenue coming in from the members and the active membership. Yeah, well, we know. Here's the thing: like, like my course doesn't gain a lot of money out of this. It just means because we have we have 800 members and we have about 900 people in the waiting list now. We just capped at 800 members, and these are very active members, by the way. They play a lot of rounds on average. Um. So we don't actually make a lot of money. We don't. I mean, we don't have our green fees are not very high, as in, as in, you know, as a part of our income, um, uh, because it's just not a lot of room for green fees. Um, obviously, as you move away from Reykjavik area, that changes. That's where they need to get more people in to get green fees. Um, 
it's just you can argue yes if we keep it that way we have more people in the club so there are more people paying membership fees but um but i don't think golf in iceland hasn't been a very expensive you know being a member of the golf club is not very expensive because these are not privately owned clubs they, they are non-profit sport clubs uh, almost every single one here in iceland there's a, there's a couple of exceptions uh, so there's no one making any money out of it it's usually on municipality land and therefore the municipality doesn't charge any fees for it they they view this as a as a service to their to the public to have sport facilities i mean even swimming pools indoor you know football fields and stuff like that that's usually the local municipality that owns it and runs it golf clubs usually are run by the golf clubs but they are on municipality land and the municipality supports us and what we need to do because of be getting money from them that they have a high focus on youth programs so we run every club here runs a very extensive youth programs where we got you know full-time staff is a PGA, you know, uh, uh, a pro who's setting up the youth programs. And just in my little club, we have 130 kids uh, practicing. And they can wow. be at varying, you know, levels, you know, just sort of kids, you know, parents finding something for the kids to do through the summer months. So they drop them off once a week to, a, you know, an hour at the range with with a pro or whatever. But in a group not not a single you know it's not a private lesson but you know pro setting up something chipping programs and stuff like that up to you know talented kids so well it sounds from a turfgrass management perspective it sounds like you'd be quite busy but let's talk about the weather a little bit because yep. you you are yeah, so you've got all these busy golf courses and then during the summer people like to play but during mm -hmm. the winter, you have you said the courses are closed, and the yep. reason that the courses are closed is because they're mostly frozen. Is that is that right, or is it just yeah. too dark and unsafe? It's both, I guess. <laughs> no, we we can. I mean, uh, sometimes when we have these pitch and putt clubs, we sometimes leave out. I, I did that when I worked at Kayla Golf Club. We just we just took three holes on the green. Uh, on not on the main course, but on the you know the other course that we have is the nine hole pits and sort of pits and putt if you like. Then we just put three holes because they're going to get frozen, and then we just ask people to rotate the pin. So if you put it into that hole, just take your pin and move it into the next hole, and then walk off, and then the next one goes. And, you know, so they rotate the the traffic and the uh, on them. But there's not a lot of people who would play through the winter months. It's morely, uh, mostly um, like seniors who are more just getting you know, time out in the fresh air and argue about politics and <laughs> and telling them how the good old days were way better than this youth was ruin, ruining <laughs> everything. <laughs> but you and I will be that those guys soon. Soon, um, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, so you can run it through the... Because the thing is, often people think about Iceland, they think ice and snow and, and crappy weather, but because we're on an island covered with the Gulf Stream, so... We are actually at around about, we hover around zero degrees through the winter months. So for example, if you go to Germany, there are cities there are colder than us. If you go, obviously, Northern America, they're way colder than us through, through, through December and, and, and January and February time. Because we're just about zero, which is about freezing temperature. If we get negative 10 degrees, that's very cold. Uh, but, it, but the light is so low yeah and we the have temperatures are cold hours. enough that when ice yeah. forms it stays doesn't it 
Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like ice will stay for a little. I mean, then again, we we sometimes get storms coming on from the uh, from the south, southwest, which is just blowing off from you know start maybe start in Florida and <laughs> start moving their way up. So sometimes we get hit in January with you know ten degrees and rain, and so. Uh, but some winters, when they have dry winters, then we can have snow for an extended period. We always get snow. We always get ice. It's just you know sometimes it doesn't stay for very long. We've sometimes been gone through winters where we have very minimal. I mean, what was it like three years ago where we had no f- frozen soil throughout the winter months? Wow, I was struck, and I I don't think I'll ever forget it when we were in the Westman Islands. And we went to the football pitch. And yeah. I believe you'd done some consulting there. And there were parts of the pitch where the turf was just fine. And I mm-hmm. think the turf was primarily Poa Pretensis. Correct me if I'm... If it I'm, probably makes... I think it's Poa Poa Pretensis and then a little bit of ryegrass sort of that's been always seen. I, I haven't done construct, uh, consulting on the football pitch, though. Uh, just on the golf course. Okay, okay. Um so, you took me there because it was interesting and it was a challenge and it was scenic and i was struck this was in september and i saw they had some worn areas and Mm -hmm. and i it just hit me i mean it it hit me really hard (laughs) because i was bundled up i had a stocking cap and i had a a warm coat and a sweatshirt underneath and Mm -hmm. i was trying to stay warm and i saw the grass was not growing and I was like, wait a second, it probably wasn't much warmer in August. It w- mm-hmm. maybe wasn't much warmer in July. And uh, it's still freezing up until April or, or up until May. So you've got mm-hmm. such a short season. And then people are yep. playing sport on these surfaces. I've, it's always astounded me uh, how one can produce a, a sporting surface, whether that's for golf or whether that's for football. And it just seems like it's incredibly challenging it is if you lose grass it's like if you because like trying to germinate stuff in these temperatures is slow everything is a bit slow and if you and then golfers for example on the golf side the golfers expectation here is not that everything is perfect coming out of the winter they will accept that you have you know might have dead grass on it they just want to play so they want to get on the surfaces they have limited understanding for you putting out a a winter green in 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 may because it's summertime sun is out let's play might be you know may on average is about seven degrees uh average day temperature then i mean like you know 24 hour temperature. so yeah that's seven that's um so that's kind of cold so trying to germinate anything and getting any growth out of that is very very difficult however if you have grass, it's not as much of a problem. The thing is, once you go that far up north, and, and it, what we see, we've seen this in forage research, and we definitely notice this. I've, I've got data here from my clip walls and, and, and all that. Is that when you have 24-hour sunlight, like that, or, you know, close to that, then leaves actually grow more than they would if they get a dark period. Um, and... We can see it clearly this year, for example, once we we were growing on average, because I need to keep my greens growing at a bit between two and three liters per 100 square meters. That's what? Uh, 20, to 20 to 30. Which is quite high for most places. But but remember, I'm getting, you know, I'm averaging 220 um, rounds per day. 
uh, sometimes seeing two sixties, two seventies. Um, so we need to keep push them and, and there are a lot on, on that course is quite a bit of po on them. So we need to push them that way. But, um, once we got into the dark periods, like sort of mid August, then that, that tapered off really rapidly. And we're now growing them at about 0 0.4. Uh, so that's about four, uh, right. milliliters per, per square meter. Uh, but the temperature in the first 10 days of September was actually highest for the entire summer. They were at 11.7. We got a warm spell. So temperatures actually increased, but our growth rates dropped down. Okay. So and that, that, that goes nitrogen. nitrogen levels were, you know, we were good on nitrogen until still applying nitrogen. Right. So that, that uh, contradicts what I said earlier in that temperature controls things and light doesn't have such a factor, but you've just explained an instance um, where light was the controlling factor in, well, in how much it was growing. Not necessarily the light energy, but it's the length of it. Because if, if you look into forage grass research, for example, when we see that cultivars that have been grown out of like high latitudes in Norway, because they have done that quite a bit. And these cultivars always have more leaf growth than normal, you know, your similar uh, cultivar. These are mostly, I'm assuming, um, you know, some something for cows to eat. And, and therefore it's, you know, fox tail grasses, you know, something like that that grows quite rapidly. But they actually have the Norwegians tend to uh, cultivars grow very excessively, like leaf wise. Um, and we see that definitely in the grasses around here. It's like once we come into the summer months, I, I remember when you first introduced clip wall to me and asked me to do some measurements and I thought it was the most pointless thing ever, but I'll do it for you, Micah. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was feeding uh, information to you for about three greens. Um, this was back in the day when I was working at Kayla Golf Club. And then you were feeding back information because you were comparing um, few courses around the world, you know, including mm -hmm. Hazeltine uh, in the U.S. And even though Hazeltine is kind of northerly for the U.S. latitude, it's still quite far south compared to us. And, and they're growing creeping bands, obviously. And, and I was looking at the clip walls, and they were growing slower than us through mm -hmm. the summer months, where you would assume. And, and it wasn't because we were applying crazy amount of nitrogen. We were applying around... Uh, at the time, 70 to 80 kilograms per year per hectare. Uh, that's shy of two pounds per thousand. It's like 1.7, 1.8 for those of you in, in America um, for a whole year. But that still gave us more leaf growth than hazeltine, which probably, so the summer months, averages a pretty nice growing environment, I'm assuming, right? They're not excessively hot out there. No, they. They have quite a bit of temperature fluctuations, but, oh, okay. uh, but yeah, they'll, they'll have a lot of time in the summer that's quite pleasant. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, creeping bent grass grows a lot when it's hot too. So, yes, I mean, it, if, if it's hot forever, it dies. But mm -hmm. if it's hot for a short period of time, the grass just grows fast. But I, I noticed that also when we were doing that project, which was back in 2000. 15, 16, 17, approximately. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to get a handle on how much grass was growing around the world and trying to figure out if clipping volume was actually a useful thing to do. 
I was struck at how similar it was in so many places and how Iceland was similar to what we were seeing in Canada and in Washington mm -hmm. and in Japan and in Hazeltine and, and so on. Um, it was quite similar how those, those curves were at the times of the year when it was peak growing season. And yeah. so it's, so what you're saying is if you don't lose grass in the winter, mm -hmm. then, then you're, usually you can manage pretty well but if you lose grass then you're looking at covers pre-germinating seed extra fertilizer what are all the things you try yeah and then, then you have to like the tricky bit is like it's easier to just strip a green reseeded <laughs> because when you've got some grass and some you know areas that don't have grass you need to like if you're going to put out covers then you need to primo or you know growth regulate the rest of it and then trying to get seeds in and then push up the nitrogen levels and um and often at times you know your greens might be starting to look fine in sort of august so you go through the entire season of not having great greens i remember because i worked in the u.s uh worked up in um at neshatic county club which is in uh, uh massachusetts concord massachusetts and i remember seeing like we had some winter kill on two greens and I remember we just put some creeping grass seeds down, some tarps out there, took them off 10 days later or something. <laughs> they were all green. I was like, wow, you can yeah. do that? <laughs> and they they were great by, you know, and late May, they were great. But you Iceland, you're looking, at, Iceland, you're looking nah, at three, three months. Yeah. And, um, and then you get into... Like I say, I mean, they're great maybe August, September, and then everything just cools down and well, October time comes cool. and hits you in the face. Now, are you familiar? Have you heard of the winter turf project that uh, University of Minnesota are leading? And they're Eric looking Watkins at and, Eric Watkins and, and that uh, group? Yeah. Are you participating in that? Okay, here's the awkward bit. <laughs> I, I, I signed up for it a couple of, I think a couple of times or at least once, <laughs> but they didn't get funding. So I didn't, it, it didn't go ahead, but it got funded this time around. And, okay. um, but I, I, I remember getting that email. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, it was a crazy busy time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get that done later on in the day. And I just never got around to it. And then I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone was talking about it. I was like, ah. Oh. Okay. Totally forgot about that, I'm, but I know what you're talking about. I have I read I read the stuff and 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 what they're well, doing. So uh, for, sorry, Eric. Uh, sorry. I will put a link to this because I mentioned not so much for you, although I would think yeah. you uh, or courses in Iceland would be mm -hmm. great to participate in this because of the risk of winter damage there. But mm -hmm. for anybody who's not aware of that, that's a really exciting project where the researchers are looking at the conditions that occur over a winter and then whether damage occurs and what type of damage and so on. And they're trying to mm -hmm. find solutions and to understand this global problem better. And they're looking for hundreds of participants from around the world where they can have damage on cool season grass. So I will put a link to that project in the description, in the show notes. Uh, for anybody that's interested, check it out. It's um, it's not a huge amount of work on the participants' no. part. It's uh, it involves some pre-winter photos 
to look at what the condition is going into the winter. And then during the winter, it involves weekly assessment or monitoring of how deep the snow is, if there's snow, noting whether there is the presence of standing water. These, I, 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 I hate even saying this. Um, it's because I, I would hate to be managing grass uh, in that kind of situation. But the, you know, the presence or absence of ice, the presence or absence of standing water, and and then in the then in, in the springtime, you note with some more photos what mm -hmm. how the grass made it through the winter, and I believe there there is some uh, data collection from weather stations and so on, but the the people running that project can let you know about that. But yep. I know they're looking for additional participants from around the world this coming winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So I'll mm -hmm. put a link to that. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to check on this to see if, I can, if I'm completely too late to sign up for this. You know, but it's a very interesting project, definitely. It, it is. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you, Let's talk about frost delays. Can we talk yeah. about frost delays? Um, yes. So what? Definitely. What is your policy at, or what has been your policy as you've been a course manager for a number of years um, in Iceland? Because there must be frost at uh, many times of the year when the course is open. Yeah. We, I mean, the first frost seen in Reykjavik this year was in... Uh, Either in end of July or beginning of August, <laughs> but that was just a one-off event. <laughs> but now we're coming into the uh, the frost thing. Now, beginning because I'm educated out of Scotland. I I I, uh, I did well my education in Scotland and then down in in uh, Cranfield University down in Milton Keynes, just north of London. And uh, uh, when I was there, we did the the classic thing: seeing pictures of black grass. Being, you know, footprinting, and you're like, oh my dear lord, we don't want this. And and so when I got back to Iceland, I was like, if we have frost on the ground, it's like, no, 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 no. You got to stay at home, and 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 sometimes it takes forever to melt this off. Then I started thinking a little bit. I was like, wait a minute. Like I went out to the course to check on frost. I definitely walked on frosted area, and I didn't see any damage. And started thinking about. It. It's like often we've seen golfers go out and play on frosty surfaces, and we didn't see any problems. So, uh, when Kaylee quite a long time ago, I started thinking, and then yeah, and I saw your stuff also. What you were talking about in what is going on in Japan and, and places, and uh, I don't often see a lot of frost damage here in Iceland. It has happened definitely, but we've seen it strangely. For example, you might see it in the rough. You know, someone driving on a buggy to check on greens. And you see frost damage in the rough, but not on the fairway. And then it flips over. You see frost damage on the fairway, but not on the, not in the rough. But none of it is really bad, and it recovers relatively quickly. Now we never kill grass this way. So, as I started looking into this, and my policy now, right now, is that if, if I see my turf grass, so if if my turf grass is growing. Normally, it's been hit with temperature, average temperature of above five degrees, you know, in sevens, eight, nines, or whatever. And then suddenly we get a night frost. I might put a delay on that, especially if the frost goes down deep, you know, it's like negative three, negative four degrees, something like that. And it gets really crunchy. However, if my turf has been 
you know, uh, hardened into the winter period. That's basically once the temperatures are, are below sort of five degrees for an expense, you know, for 10 to two weeks or something like that. If you're hovering between zero and five degrees, I've always allowed people to play, even though it's frosty surfaces, because I've never seen any, anything, no footprinting on anything on, on the frosty surfaces. So, my view these days is I, I, I can't prove this. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't done the exact science or data behind the whole thing. But, I, you know, once turf grasses start hardening into the winter months, um, they don't seem to show up much damage at all. Um, but once you get this first frost of the years, you know, when the turf is, uh, you know, is green and growing and all of a sudden it dips down, you know, one night... That's probably when we might get this problem. But I think what I would like us to do as an industry is research this and understand this and have a way of measuring, you know, something you put just stick in your greens or whatever and, and, and it measures. Because I think it's got something to do with humidity, something to do with temperature, you know, what, what temperature you're coming in, what time of year. Because do we that. definitely see the, we see these footprintings. We know that. We've all seen the picture. And if you mm -hmm. mention it on Twitter, it's like, I don't think you'd have to have all these frost delays. People are like, oh, look at my pictures. That's dead grass. That's black grass. You wouldn't want that. And I was like, mm, you know, it's like. Yeah, I, I had some interesting conversations at the Masters this year about yeah. frost delays. And there's a lot of golf course superintendents who are there working and as volunteers. So it's not so much with the Augusta National Golf Club staff mm -hmm. as it is with some of the people from around the American Southeast. And mm -hmm. we're even talking about frost delays on Ultra Dwarf Bermuda grass and stuff. And I'm just like, are you mm -hmm. kidding me? Like the grass is dormant. Why would you, why would you have a frost delay on dormant grass? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Right. But, but uh, what I, took from from what those superintendents are telling me um mm. and especially when they're coming from high high-end clubs is they mm. say look our our members want the grass to be perfect yeah our members expect the grass to be perfect my mm -hmm. job is to keep the grass perfect so mm -hmm. i'm not going to let them do anything and they don't want to do anything that might damage the turf yeah, yeah. so even that risk and and it's all about visual right and I'm like, mm -hmm. but but they're like, but we don't need the money. We're there. It's not like yeah. they're losing green fees from it. That's like from mm -hmm. private clubs. Yeah, yeah. But what? So I was like, okay, I understand that. I actually I can't argue with that. If if you want it to look perfect, you mm -hmm. don't want any risk of a blemish. Mm -hmm. then but I don't think here, here's the thing. I don't think there will be a blemish but in most scenarios. There are definitely scenarios where this happens, and we haven't researched this for some reason, which is strange. Because if you get $100 from every golf club that deals with Frostilis and put that into a research fund, there will be plenty enough money to come up with solutions <laughs> where we know when are you going to get these blemishes that will stay on for a little while. And that's what, you know, visually could sort of hurt your business in some areas of around the world. I don't think it's going to have that much effect, to be fair. But anyways, but still... Where you don't want this footprinting, but if if we could say it's like okay, we measured the environmental conditions, you know, we know the humidity over the X period, you know, the, through the night or whatever, and, and the frost and at what level it was, and what was what was the condition of the turf coming into this, we should be able to find like a tipping point where it's safe to go and play on frosty ground, and when it's not safe. And in my case, I've played, I've 
send out golfers playing, I don't know how often on frosted surfaces. And I've hardly ever seen a problem. And that's in my climate. Again, it's in my climate. I'm in a climate where sort of you you get into a cool temperatures, you know what I mean? It's sort of for an extended period. I know that some other won't have that. You know, they might be dropping more rapidly and that, that might be causing the problem. But if you can research it and find out, okay, yeah, you know what? Today, if you step on it, you're going to have a black turf, you know, the next day. Or no, you can actually go out and play. And how much money could, will we save? Hundred dollars yeah. a year from every golf club that deals with frosty lights. We could do this, right? <laughs> I, I think it's possible. You've you've suggested this on Twitter uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a few times. And speaking of, I, I agree with you. Speaking of Twitter, um, I noticed yesterday you had a somewhat viral tweet. You announced that you're moving to a new position at the end of this season, and yep. you put a very pretty picture of your existing golf course. If if I identified it correctly. Yes, yes. Um, Nash Golf Club like is a phenomenal place because of location. You've got three hundred and sixty views of you know. You actually have a glacier and one you know playing down the first. You play into a glacier and then you've got the entire city, amazing city views. And then we had fantastic volcano going off, and you can see the <laughs> you can actually see the lava getting shot in the air. <laughs> it's a amazing place, but. Uh, I'm just shifting ground. I mean, when you work on that property, you're obviously obviously doing a little bit of everything, which I like. I enjoy being my own irrigation tech. I enjoy being my own mechanic. Even I enjoy being, you know, doing all these bits and bobs. But it just gets a little bit tiring on a, a on a body that's getting slightly older. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to. I snapped my Achilles tendon this year, and I noticed I'm getting a little bit older. Sports are not safe anymore. <laughs> So, no, no, I'm moving on uh, to GMOS is on the opposite side of Reykjavik, pretty much. A um, place that has uh, two facilities, like an 18-holer and a 9-holer, you know, located uh, a bit further inland. There I'll have my, you know, course manager in course. you got my mechanics and even a gardener. So, just stepping a little bit back, if you know, I mean, sort of managing that. And, slightly different. But uh, speak so that's exciting. You're starting in uh, before Christmas. Yeah, we'll finish wrap up the season at Ness, and then I'm, I'm heading over there probably November time, um, uh, most likely. And so, yeah, cool. Could I ask you a little bit about some of the things that I talked about on that initial visit to Iceland, which was mm-hmm. uh, MLSN, which was mm-hmm. very new at that time, but you've been implementing it. I talked about MLSN and growth potential and mm-hmm. I hadn't uh, thought of clipping volume yet or OM246, but you've yeah. subsequently, um, I, I think you've been applying MLSN on football mm-hmm. pitches, on yep. golf courses. Um, yep. You've done some work with clipping volume, which you mentioned earlier, you thought was one of the craziest things you'd ever heard of. Yep. And um, we've recently done some OM246 testing also. Um mm-hmm. Do you plan to do those at the new facility? And like, yes. does MLSN work? And is it widely used in Iceland? It's getting more used, but um, MLSN. I mean, I started doing this like sort of mid-season 2013. You came in September, so I had no. Am I getting this? Company? Anyway, well, I started this kind of early off, and and 
Because the same reason is that I always scratch my head a little bit because we were applying all this stuff, but I, I was looking at areas where didn't weren't receiving, you know, phosphorus or, or potassium or whatever, and they were doing absolutely fine. There was no problem there. And I was always scratching my head a little bit after reading all these books in, <laughs> in turf school back in the day. And like, this is really needed. And I'd been talking to uh, a researcher up in Norway, Agna Kvalp, and he was saying, it's like, we're we're not seeing any benefits of this potassium applications through the winter months. And I was like, I don't notice that. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> so why are we overloading like potassium nitrates and, and, you know, jacking up the potassium levels in the winter months and it was not doing much for us. So when I saw your MLSN <clears throat> theory, it made perfect sense. So I switched over to that. And I, I, I mean, like I said, I've maintained um, football pitch with almost nothing but urea and ammonium sulfate when I was at Kalid for through five seasons of, of that, no problem. That's a sand-based... But it's roots, roots It's because there was enough phosphorus and potassium yeah, yeah, yeah. and calcium yeah. supplied yeah. by the soil. It's, yes. it's not that you because, only do N. No, 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 it's, no. It's just because when we, when we looked at the soil samples, we were seeing roughly a decade's worth of potassium in there <laughs> and, and maybe like 50 years' worth of phosphorus because it had been fat, the years before with relatively high amounts of phosphorus and potassium and other stuff. So once we start looking at it, it's like, that's kind of high. We can just, let's switch over to just nitrogen. And what do you know? They perform great. This is considered the best football pitch. I mean, this is at the time it was a club that was just winning the league constantly. And we were delivering what was considered the best football pitch and, and, and uh, you know, just on nitrogen. And uh, right now I think, I think we're down. I mean, they're applying for, uh, potassium at the moment now, uh, you know, at two to one ratio. Um, not entirely sure if any phosphorus is needed there. Yeah, I, I haven't. I, I haven't been uh, in charge of this place for the past five years, so I, I can't tell you exactly. But I'm assuming that at potassium levels right now, they need to apply it. Um, and the same thing goes with golf courses. I mean, that I've been maintaining. Um, if if you're above the MLSN limit, we don't see any problems growing it just on ureas and, and ammonium nitrate or, you know, whatever nitrogen source you're using. Even in that relatively stressful climate? No. no. The only times I I deviate from it and switch into an NPK feed, I've done that a few times on NAS Club because we have uh, a nematode problem. We have um, nematodes called subanguina raticicola. That's my Latin. <laughs> this is a root gal nematode that attacks our poas and... Uh, Sometimes, you know, in their life cycle, they become a, a bit of a problem in sort of May, June period. And you see they don't have any root structure or anything going on. You know, they're really struggling, the POAs. And we sometimes switch over to a complete NPK feed at sort of 814 ratio. Uh, right. Which so is then more, you. It's just because I don't think I have any root structure. Well, there isn't root structure because it's been eaten, you know, it's been attacked. Uh, right. So that's why I s tend to switch over to that just for that little period. But if you look at my annual NPK ratios, PKs are kind of low. It's just to get through that like two week period where they're getting a bit hammered. Right. The nematodes. That's the nematodes ease off and nematodes are not always the same year to year. So I might have years where they're not, I'm not that concerned about it. It's just because I don't think I have the access to the the rest of the roots, you know, the, the soil where. Right. The, and so that's what I tell it's, people. It's, it's, 
Yeah. I tell people, and they're like, well, what about salinity problems? Or I I think my nutrients are going to be locked up and or in the soil and you know words that I don't like to use I th- I say look if you don't if you don't think that you have a functioning root system just mm-hmm. apply an 8 to 1 to 4 and just yeah. just assume the soil can supply nothing but what yeah. people don't realize is if they would just apply a reasonable amount of nitrogen and 100% of phosphorus 100% of potassium that the grass could use something like an 8 to 1 to 4 ratio like yeah. you're doing when you don't have a root system because of nematodes mm. if you would just do that you would apply less fertilizer than the industry does on average because the industry yeah. over fertilizes so much that they're applying more phosphorus than the grass can use more potassium than the grass can use and that that's just ignoring what the soil can supply so um, I, I have no problem with recommending what I call the uh, precision fertilization approach or the demand-driven yeah. fertilization approach from STRF. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, look, if you don't want to trust your root system, you don't want to mm-hmm. trust it, just apply 100% of what the grass can use or, if, yeah. or apply 110% or 120%. <laughs> but what I don't think is useful is applying 300% or 400%. And you just see, sometimes you see outrageous amounts of elements that are not, um, they're not used by the grass. It's not stored by the soil. You saw Jackie Guevara's uh, master's research research Mm -hmm. project at Michigan State comparing SLAN versus MLSN. If you read any of those blog posts or saw us talk on ATC office hours, um, what was it? 378% Three hundred and seventy-eight percent more yep, something potassium like yep. was applied by SLAN, and it's trying to hit this target in the soil. But at the end of the experiment, she measured it, and yeah. it it wasn't in the soil; it was gone. So I I don't like people uh, doing that um, mm-hmm. because I think they're they're just wasting it. So it's yeah. it's unfortunate. It, it's like the research that got me thinking about this, which is. Uh, uh, um, wasn't it Kosso, uh, Doxolda, mm-hmm. and Kreuzer, um, yeah, and Hulahan, maybe? Hulahan, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there four of them, where they were applying just straight nitrogen, applying something with phosphorus and nitrogen, something with potassium and nitrogen, and then a complete MPK. And looking at the leaf tissues throughout, you know, that period, trying to look for, you know, what happens when you apply that. And what do you know? Because the soil had plenty of potassium and plenty of phosphorus already in the beginning. It wasn't run low, you know, coming into it. They didn't see any any of that P or K coming into the plant. And right. it's it, like when I read that research, I was like, that makes sense to me. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense yeah, to me. And, yeah, we've all kind of uh, converged on the same answer that yeah. makes a lot of sense logically it makes mm-hmm. sense. It's it's supported by a lot of research data, and it makes sense logically. And, the, and then it works in the field. And too. Right, yeah, and but and varying climates. You know, it's like I'm in a bit of an extreme climate to, compared to a lot of people, and 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 absolutely works fine. <laughs> it's like it really does. And the beauty about it is so cheap. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, when, I, when I when I took over at Kaylee, I, I managed to drop the fertilizer budget. I'm, I'm not including you know other chemicals into that. Just just fertilizer. We, we dropped that by eighty percent by switching over to you know just using your ureas and and we didn't drop any quality. Green yeah, yeah, so, and I think then 
people can spend money on labor or on yeah. uh, soil surfactants or more yep. top dressing sand or irrigation mm -hmm. repairs or um, whatever whatever is I needed. Spent, I spent the money. Oh yeah, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Oh, I don't need that money. Take that money away. I did not do that. I found other ways to use it, but um, it's just yeah, it's just a good. I think we got by now so much both research and experience and, and um, field experiment experience of using it. I don't, you know, people shouldn't really be scared of going down this route. Cool. Well, Bjarni, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I could talk with you for another couple of hours, I'm sure, but I'm not going to burden our listeners or you because this is during uh, both of our working hours. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and say goodbye and, and, and close. And uh, I hope maybe when you move to the new job and maybe you have some time in the winter, uh, oh, it's yeah. dark outside, maybe, maybe yeah. we could talk again because I've got a few more posts on my blog about mm -hmm. Iceland, which I think is just absolutely fascinating. We could talk about it for so long. And so I can always use that as a pretense to say, let's have a double cut about this. And then we can yeah. just talk about whatever we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Lure people into listening, but actually just talking about something else. <laughs> like yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but thanks for having me, Mike. Always a pleasure chatting about turf. All right. Th thank you very much, Bernie. All right, everybody. I'll, I'll quickly sign off. Thank you all for listening. And I know some people are watching. Uh, I think slightly more people are listening. And I will be back again soon with another ATC Double Cut. For ATC from Bangkok, Thailand, I am Michael Woods. Bye-bye.